Uh, we're going to go ahead and start tonight. Uh, I had promised you last time that we would find this old Emo Phillips bit, and then I forgot at the end. So uh, just sort of calling to mind the, uh, the tendency that we have to lock on to something that we believe, some, some systematic theology, and then just be incredibly dismissive and condescending to everyone else. Um, had a great conversation with Josiah on the way out here tonight, uh, talking about some of Grudem's revisions, even in his systematic theology book. And when we were at the uh, Answers in Genesis conference, uh, Ken Hammett actually quoted several of the passages in there where he's like, uh, I've changed my mind from what I believed about what scripture clearly says, especially about having to do with the age of the earth because of overwhelming scientific evidence and basically saying, and therefore I don't believe scripture is either scripture is right or I'm not rightly interpreting. Hopefully it's number two. Uh, number one would be terrible. And we should not only be careful with this book, we should probably burn it <laughs> if it's that. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it is. I, I think it's, uh, I don't think I've been rightly handling it, uh, but that should call us to a level of humility for ourselves. And I, I, one of the things Josiah said that was really good is, why is it that I, as a super young guy, assume all the things that I'm 100% convinced of that I've just somehow magically got right and everybody else is wrong? It, it should make us humble and go, okay, God, let me be super careful with my own life and doctrine. Uh, always reforming to scripture uh, and not trusting anything else. So anyways, here's a good example of uh, what happens if you don't do that. We should all learn to love each other. Once I was in San Francisco walking along the Golden Gate Bridge and I saw this guy in the bridge about to jump. I thought I'd try to stall him, detain him, long enough for me to put the film in. <laughs> I said, don't jump, and he turns. You heard of the elephant, man. He had the head like the head of a horse. And my heart went out to him. I said, why the long face? <laughs> he said, all my life, people have called me cruel names like Flicka, Trigger, Silver, Chesspiece. I said, well, don't worry about it, Ed. It can't be that yeah. bad. He said, oh, yeah? How would you like to go through your whole life as a freak? I said, well, he said, well, you're a bad example. <laughs> I said, come on. You're not the only person in this world saddled with the food problems. Don't be mule at it. Stop horsing around and get down from there, you silly ninny. He said, why go on? In a hundred years, the planet
land will be uninhabitable. In 10 million years, the sun will burn out. In 100 billion years, all matter will disintegrate from the universe. Also, perhaps, but in the meantime, in between time, ain't we got some? <laughs> Besides, you're forgetting about God. He said, how do you know there's a God? I said, of course there's a God. You think billions of years ago, a bunch of molecules floating around at random without rhyme or reason could someday have had this sense of humor to make you look like that? <laughs> <laughs> he said, I used to believe in God. I said, that's good. Were you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too, Protestant or Catholic. He said, Protestant. I said, me too, what franchise? <laughs> he says, Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. I said, me too, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist each turn region. He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region Council of 1879. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region Council of 1912. He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region Council of <laughs> Isn't that just like a really sad commentary how we have so much of the gospel in common and we dis disagree on some really serious matters. I mean, some of the stuff we talked about Tuesday night um, and yet how quickly we just lump them into the heretic category. All right. Well, Lord, we pray tonight, uh, God, that we would be careful with your word. I pray, Lord, that as we come to your word, we would also be humbled by your word. Not that we would stand in some uh, measure of wisdom and discernment over it, but we pray, Lord, let your word discern our hearts and thoughts and motives. Uh, let it unveil within us uh, secret areas and blind spots that we have. Uh, it's so easy, oh God, to see them in other people, but we pray, Lord, would you let your word do your work in us. Uh, even tonight, even as we talk about some of the things uh, dealing with your sovereignty, uh, your rule, your reign over all things, I pray our hearts would be convicted of places where we have failed to trust your sovereignty, uh, uh, areas where we have trusted more in ourselves or those around us, or in fact, uh, because we have trusted not in you but in us, we have failed to hope at all. And so... Uh, fix our eyes, our thoughts, our hope on Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, uh, and let us uh, see him clearly in your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, Jay's going to come and kick us off with lesson four. If I can get this back over here, the Trinity. All right. All right, yeah, talking about the, the Trinity in this um, first session tonight. This is one of those areas that does uh, separate the Orthodox from the heretics and... Uh, so it is, it is important. <laughs> it is that important. Um, and, and it's, we would all agree, mysterious at the same time. This, this is a humbling doctrine uh, because our puny little brains are just simply not enough um, to fully wrap our heads around this. But God has revealed himself in his word and so we can know him truly. Uh, John Frame said, Scripture only gives us a glimpse, not a treatise on this subject, on the subject of the, of the Trinity. Uh, he says, I think some theologians exaggerate what we know about the Trinity. Much that the Bible teaches about the Trinity is very mysterious, and we must bow in humility as we enter into this holy realm. Um, I like that. that, that when, when we're discussing this, again, like we said Tuesday night, we're not, we're not doing some kind of cold scientific study. We're, we are studying the holy. Uh, we're, we're studying God himself. And so it's essential that we do that with humility and with reverence. And we do it worshipfully. Our study of God produces worship in us. Um, and so there, there is this balance when we are discussing the, the triune Godhead. That, that we need to be careful not to, to go into the realm of conjecture and and assumptions and go beyond scripture and also we don't want to downplay what scripture does reveal to us and so um, there there are a lot within within this topic there are a lot of nuances and arguments and um, objections and disagreements that we won't spend as much time on but we will try to give ourselves a clear picture a, it's not that that much of this information will be brand new to you, I trust, but um, it's it's fruitful to examine what Scripture teaches us about the Godhead and about the roles of each person of the Godhead. So we'll start as we always uh, have been with some definitions. Um, a number of these have to do with with um, some false teachings, misunderstanding of um, the Trinity, uh, adoptionism, the false teaching. That Jesus lived as an ordinary man until his baptism, at which point God adopted him as his son. At that point, God conferred on him supernatural powers. Um, so obviously, uh, just to hear that, we, we see that uh, there's a denial in that, in that belief and in that understanding, in that claim, uh, denying Jesus' preexistence, denying his divine nature. There's Arianism. Named, of course, after Arius, who at this time of year, we think a lot about Arius. And we think of St. Nicholas famously striking him in the face at the Council of Nicaea, which never happened because Arius was not allowed in the proceedings at the Council of Nicaea. But it's a great story. And we should keep celebrating it, I believe, as part of the Christmas season. Uh, Arianism is the... Uh, false doctrine, it denies the full deity of Christ. Uh, denies the full deity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, then we have economic su subordination is the next one on your list. Uh, 
teaching that certain members of the Trinity have roles or, or functions that are subject to the control or authority of other members of the Trinity. Next, the eternal begetting of the Son. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Economic subordination. It's a teaching that, that, uh, of hierarchy, that some members of the Trinity have roles and functions that are subject to the control and authority of other members of, of the Trinity. Eternal begetting of the Son. It's the eternal relationship within the Trinity between Father and Son in which the Son has eternally related to the Father as Father. So the Son has been Son, Father has been Father. Modalism, heretical teaching that says that uh, the Godhead is not three distinct persons, but one person who appears in different, form, different forms or different modes. That, Patrick, in fact, is modalism. Um, ontological equality, um, and that is just in relation to, to being or essence, um, quality. Um, that the that the all three members of the Godhead are eternally equal in divine being in divine essence and Trinity this word it's the doctrine that God exists eternally as three persons Father Son and Holy Spirit each person is fully God there is only one God so we'll dive in here one one of the bedrock confessions of the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy six the Shema it is the statement about God that. Um, that the Jews have been repeating ever since um, the, the days of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God, uh, is the, the first statement of the Shema, which is just the, uh, the word here in, in Hebrew. That's where it gets its name. But um, th this statement. Uh, so Judaism, Christianity after it, are considered monotheistic religions. In other words, one God. That statement right there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so we look at the other at the other religions. We look at the at the uh, Republican presidential debate last night, and you hear Vivek uh, Vivek Ramaswamy just owning the other guys on the on the stage, and you're like, I like this guy, and then you go. Oh, he believes in like a million gods because he's a Hindu. Uh, that's not monotheistic. That is polytheistic. Uh, and so we, we, see, um, we see this idea in one God, one God who rules over all. Um, and so we see this typical response in Isaiah, um, Isaiah 46. I will just read this one, um, but listen as I read. Listen for what separates the true God of Israel from other so-called gods as I read. Just take note of that. Bel, that's a foreign god, bows down. Nebo, it's another foreign god, stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden they themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. To the gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and I will save. 
To whom will you liken me or make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into God. They fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So what do we see separating the one true God from all these other so-called gods of the foreigners. Right, right. They are they're impotent. They're weak. They're powerless. They they have to be made by human hands, and then once made, they just sat there. Uh, and the God of Israel does whatever He wants to do. The God of Israel delivers. The God of Israel saves. The God of Israel declares the end from the beginning. The God of Israel is not made by human hands. There's a contrast in there too where God says that I will carry you. Meanwhile, you, they're carrying you. Right. Right. Yeah. So we, we see this um, in Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45. And listen here as I as I read this. Why is it significant that there's only one God? Isaiah 45, verses 18 through 25. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who formed the earth and made it, I'm the Lord, there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come and come. Draw near together. You survivors of the nations, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out righteousness with a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord shall it be said, uh, uh, shall it be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. The Lord, In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall be glorified. What's the significance there that there is only one God? Yeah, there, there is no other. Who, who is deserving of worship? Well, none but this God. None of these false gods. None of these false gods made of wood, made of, made of, of the materials that God himself has made. In Isaiah 42, God says, My glory I will not give to another. Uh, and so God, God is deserving of praise. God demands praise. He demands worship. He demands allegiance that every knee would bow. 
So the Old Testament's abundantly clear. There's only one God. And then we come to the New Testament and, and, and Revelation continues to unfold and we begin to see more of the picture than we see in the Older Testament. Uh, we see this, this threefold formula begin to be used for God, Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we see these statements. So, So based on what we just read in the Great Commission, do the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have one name or three names? And why does our answer to that matter? What does Jesus say? Go, therefore, um, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he he doesn't say baptize them in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't say baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. He uses a singular expression, the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Why might that matter? Given what we've just been talking about. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Uh, And so, the we, there's a lot we could say about those statements. There's a lot we could say about, about the clear divinity of Christ and the clear divinity of the Holy Spirit. The God who will not share his glory, will not share his, his honor with another. Um, and to, to, to see these expressions which clearly are, are ascribing godness and glory to, to not just the Father, but to the Son and to the Spirit. Uh, in in Jesus' baptism, we see one of the clearest pictures uh, of the three persons of the Godhead. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, T.D. Jakes has walked into the room. And he wants to talk to you about modalism. And he wants to talk to you about God who appears in these different forms. What do you have to say to him from Jesus' baptism? Two of them were there. Actually, three of them were in there. There are nine of them. Uh, three, three of them are there. Where, how? Where, where, how? How do we see the three persons of the Godhead simultaneously in the baptism of Christ? We see Christ being baptized. We see the Spirit descending like a dove, not like in the form of a dove. Right. A dove is here. And we hear over here. We hear God the Father. Right. And we don't see that necessarily anyone else saw the Spirit descending like a dove, but Christ saw the Spirit descending like a dove. But we see all three persons of the Godhead right here. The Son in the water, the Spirit descends, the Father speaks. 
Uh, and so, uh, a, a basic, a basic um, statement on who, on, on the triune Godhead is, and I know you've seen it before, a triangle and a circle. That's, uh, you know, you all know St. Patrick's bad analogies, that video. All the analogies fall flat, but you can make a triangle and a circle. Um, there is one God. There are three persons in God. Each person is fully God, and each person is not the other person. Distinct. Uh, and so, God the Father, God the Son. Uh, throughout this class, we'll be describing God's person and his work as revealed in the Bible. For the purpose of this lesson, we will limit our focus on the deity of each member of the Trinity and the unique role that each one plays. Beginning with the Father, when we say God, that's often who we mean. John Calvin said that when, when Scripture says God, we should assume the Trinity uh, is in view, unless there's some other, unless there's some clarifying statement about one particular person. Often, though, when we say when we say God, we say it loosely like that. We mean all that is God, but often when we talk about God, we're talking about the Father. God gave his Son. We mean the Father gave his Son. Uh, and so, uh, God the Father is the fountain of all being. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Yeah, did, are these, are these, these passages aren't in there, are they? I did a bad job with these notes, but it was a lot of years ago, so what am I going to do? 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. I will try to, to be explicit about the, the passages. Uh, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we all exist. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 34 through 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So is it possible that some things exist independent from God the Father? And why does it matter? Our answer to that. Things like just the functioning of the universe, natural law. Things like moral laws, uh, morality. Things like Satan and evil. Um, can, do some of these things exist independent from God the Father? And why does it matter? No. Why no? Because if you do not know about those things, or if they were independent from God, he would not be omnipotent. Yes, but specifically in Scripture, where it says that all things through him exist, yeah. and all things were for him. All, thi all things that exist, or all things that were <laughs> True. Uh, yeah, which is a, a nonsensical question that we should just Forget. ignore completely. Can God make a squared circle? No, he can't. That's not a real thing. Um, if any of these things existed, right? If you, you bring a, a kindly, sweet atheist in here to address the group tonight, he's going to have a, a high moral code. 
My wife's cousin, the Satanist, has a high moral code. He has a clearly defined sense of what's right and what's wrong, what is good and what is evil. And he would just apply, uh, uh, appeal to humanity. Our human cultural experience has told us what's good and what's bad. We just know what's good and what's bad. It's bad to hurt kids. It's bad to murder people, to do these things. Um, and the biblical response to that is absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's only one, there's, there's only one foundation for morality. There's only one foundation for good and evil. Uh, there's only one standard, and it comes from God. It's based on, on who God is um, and what God has said in his word. And so it's essential that we understand uh, these things. Uh, as Luther said, the devil's God's devil. He does, he does not uh, operate outside of the sphere of God's sovereign control. All things are from him, through him, and to him. Uh, and so, in scripture we observe that even the Son and the Spirit are from the Father, um, as all things are from the Father. Now, not in the sense that, that they, the Son and the Spirit did at some point not exist, and God the Father had to create them, uh, or that they are less than, um, but in the sense that Christ is called the only what of the Father? The only begotten Son. The Father is not the begotten Son of the Son. It's, it is this direction. The Son is the begotten Son of the Father, not the other way around. And so it's the Son who is sent by the Father. Um, the Father is not sent by the Son. And the Father sends the Spirit. The Spirit does not send the Father. Um, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, said what? I don't speak on my own authority. I speak on the authority of my Father. I have not come to do my own will. I've come to do the will of my Father. Uh, and so, so what 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, tells us that, that well, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. God the Father is the head of Christ. And so all of this, even the way the, uh, the Bible talks about, about those things are showing us the distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Three distinct persons. So God is, is certainly known as Father. God is also known in the person of the Son. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on all of this that we're not, that we're not spending um, there is, there's again a lot of complexity when we talk about these things. There's a lot of debate about these things. Um, but we just want to clearly present the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as God. And the Gospel of John is filled with this. The Gospel of John is, is concerned with, uh, with making sure this is hammered into our heads. Let me just assign four passages from the Gospel of John. Um, somebody want to do John 1, verses 1 through 3? Okay, somebody, John 8, verses 57 through 59. Somebody, John 10, verses 27 through 33. Okay, and Avery, John 20, 26 through 28. Okay, so 
Whoever's got John 1, go ahead and do that. 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay. In the beginning of the word was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Of course, when the Jehovah's Witness knock on your door, they're going to want to study the Bible with you out of their translation, which is corrupt, and adds the word A in there. The word was a God. And you just tell them no. And they'll say, isn't it good for brothers to study the Bible together? And you say, do you believe that Jesus is God? And they'll say, no. And then you'll say, then we're not brothers. Have a great day. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 57 through 59. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why Why they freak out? They knew exactly what he was saying. This is one of those I am statements that we see repeated through the Gospel of John. Jesus is claiming for himself Godness, Yahweh. That, that's who Jesus is, is claiming to be. And they get it. And so they try to murder him. Uh, John 10, 27 through 33. Okay, thank you. Uh, and John 20. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in, it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed? That's good. You're good. You're good. Thank you. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said something to him, but what Jesus said was not, okay, hold on. Right? What happens anytime in the Bible when a, an angel or a godly person gets ascribed some sort of divinity? They always respond the same. They freak out. They tear their clothes. They're like, do not do this. <laughs> this is not what I want. Uh, Jesus never does that. Jesus just said, yeah, I said a godly person. <laughs> uh, we, we see also in the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, uh, further proof of this. So Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 22, says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Okay, so here it is. Yahweh speaks in Isaiah and makes a statement. But listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess 
Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, why is it such a big deal that Paul alludes to Isaiah 45 and ascribes it to Jesus? And if, if, if Jesus is something less than the Father, what has Paul just committed? Blasphemy. Blasphemy, right? So it's, it's a significant thing. Another pair of texts here. Psalm 102, verses 18 through 27. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord, he has broken my strength in mid-course, he has shortened my days. O oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, and you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same. Your years have no end. Then in the New Testament book of Hebrews, starting in verse 8, it says, But of the Son he says, and then here's what we have, in, in beginning uh, then in verse 10. You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So there's no doubt. There's no doubt what's being said about Jesus. These statements about Yahweh in the Old Testament are being directly applied to Jesus. That as Paul says in Colossians 2, 9, in him, the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What about the son's role? The son's role within the Trinity. Let me assign some more verses here. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews it, verse eight, chapter 1, verse 8, um, but really through 12. Uh, okay, somebody, John 1, 14 through 18. I got you. All righty, thanks. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. I got it. Colossians 1, 11 through 15. Got it. Matthew 11, 25 through 27. Okay, we're listening here for the, the, the role of the Son, the work of the Son. Uh, go ahead, John 1. Okay, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. 
but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, Colossians 1, 11 through 15. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Matthew 11, 25 through 27, please. Okay, so we see this this um, essential work of Christ um, common in all of these statements, and that is God the Son has come to reveal God the Father, uh, God He to make Him known to us in ways we would not otherwise know Him. Uh, he's the exact imprint of His nature. He is the image of the invisible God, and of course, bound up in that is the work of salvation. We know that God is, is merciful and gracious um, in the Old Testament. We know God declares himself to be that, right? You remember he, he, Moses asked that God would reveal himself to him. God speaks uh, and reveals himself as gracious and compassionate. Um, and we see it even all the more clearly, all the more clearly in, in Christ. Uh, so one of the one of the one of the most helpful ways, because the doctrine of the Trinity is so mysterious, one of the most helpful ways to understand what we believe is by knowing what we don't believe. Um, and and so people do that thing where they're like, I just wish churches wouldn't spend so much time talking about what they don't believe and would spend more time talking about what they do believe. Uh, point well taken. We should, we should glory in exalting Christ. But one of the clearest ways to teach what we don't believe is to teach alongside, or to teach what we do believe is to teach alongside of it what we don't believe. Because what we don't believe shows us what we do believe. So, I don't buy it when people make that argument. Uh, so, what are some Trinitarian heresies that you're familiar with? You've watched the video of Donald and Connell confronting poor Patrick. Uh, what, what are some of them? Maybe you don't know them by name, but... Partialism. Partialism is what? That's a... Voltron! Yeah, you say that's a Voltron. <laughs> yeah, Father... Oh. 
Father, Son, and Spirit are three parts of a whole. When, when they come together, it makes a whole God. Um, yeah, any, any, any others? We said modalism earlier. One God who appears in uh, three different modes. It's, uh, oneness Pentecostals hold to modalism. Um, that's probably the most famous, the most famous group. But these things get casually taught in all kind, not just in the analogies we use, but in imprecise teaching and, and language. And that's why it's important that we study things like the Trinity. So with, with modalism, is they're teaching one God, and Jesus does his preaching role. But, yeah. How do they handle like the passage of where Jesus baptism? They just ignore it. No, they they would just say that 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 God's doing that that you know. God is orchestrating that whole situation. Uh, and so there, I mean, modalism isn't exactly uh, a theologically precise doctrine. Um, when someone that I know that, that has specifically brought up this specific scripture that follows modalism quite heavily, just says that because God is outside of time and space, that even when he's bound, when he's inside of It is. it is, but they, yeah, they would basically just go, well, that's not a problem for us at all. God's doing all of it. God's speaking. God's, the spirit is coming. Um, and, and, um, yeah, it's, uh, so. it's interesting when you think about those things, uh, when you, the further you depart from orthodoxy, the more the fabric of the entire thing has to come apart. And, well, now all of a sudden, uh, it's almost like they're making a matrix argument here. Like, well, God's here, but he's not really here because he's outside of time and space. You know, he, he's he's here among us, but our, it, I mean, it, follow that, that argument. Our natural existence that's going on here only sort of really exists. Mm. I mean, and that's the, you just undermine the incarnation in that. Like, that's the beauty of the incarnation, that the eternal God who exists outside of time and space came into time and space and inhabited the womb. Like, that, it, it's, it, you just removed all of the mystery and worship and wonder of Christmas. Nice job. <laughs> but the way, the way that, that they will talk about it is really deceptive. I think part of it is that they're self-deceived. Uh, you're giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're not intentionally being slick. Uh, but there was a thing a number of years ago where T.D. Jakes was on this thing called the Elephant Room with um, Mark Driscoll and James. Uh, oh gosh, what's his name from? He used to be from Harvest Christian Fellowship. James McDonald. Yeah. Uh, who? Let's be honest. That's not exactly the dream team for our side, but. Um, they let T.D. Jakes basically weasel his way out of owning any of this, and they just gave him the like, okay, I think we're good. I think we're brothers. 
um, because you, there's a way of talking about it that is very slippery and, and hard. And we see this with other things. Mormonism. Um, I, had a, I had a guy that, that was coming in to meet with me who was being lured by Mormons over in Kendallville. And he just, for the life of him, couldn't see the difference. Like, what's the big deal? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but but they you know they hold to a kind of tritheism that that the three separate gods and you can be your own also one day you know um, and uh, I finally gave him a, a sheet of published Mormon teaching and a sheet of Bible passages refuting it. And said, if you come back into my office again and tell me you're going to be a Mormon, I want you to know the next time I see you, I don't consider you a Christian. You're a non-believer. Uh, this is a cult. Uh, and he joined the Mormons. Uh, so I did a good job. I did a good job. This is what I'm saying to you. No, it wasn't great at all. I like made it super clear. And he's like, I think I'm team Mormon. It's the shirts. It's the short sleeve button ups. Yeah, that'll get you every time. Uh, on our every child campus, we have Mormons come to our campus to try. Really? Oops. Bold. So they come to my they come to my apartment and they're like, "Can we talk?" They're like, "Can we have a minute of your time?" And I'm like, oh, "I'm not interested." And uh, so they come badger me and they're like, "Well, they're, they're like, do you know anybody that do you know anybody else that needs Jesus?" And I was like, "My friends upstairs, they really." <laughs> Nobody needs your Jesus. They're like young and super zealous, and they they had them over like six times. Nice. All right. Yeah. 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 So there's there's all there's Arianism. We see that in in. Um, which we talked about in the in the um, definitions, groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? That that Jesus is a lesser created being. Docetism, Jesus is divine, yes, uh, but not fully human. Uh, he just seemed to be human. So when he took on flesh, he was sort of a Superman in disguise. Um, and so you see that in similar to the teaching of Christian Science, Ebionitism. Uh, that Jesus is extremely gifted, but just a human. Um, we see that with Unitarians. Um, Macedonianism, the Holy Spirit is a created being. Uh, again, adoptionism, we saw in our definitions that Jesus was a human, later adopted at his, uh, either at his baptism or at his resurrection, and that's when he became divine. Uh, and so... These are all errors. And, and as we understand these errors and we go, okay, no, that's not orthodox, we, we understand more of what we believe. Uh, and so, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we've seen what the scripture teaches about God the Father, God the Son, divine persons of the Godhead. We'll turn our attention here to God the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows the person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Psalm 139, 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your Spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Again, we're, we see here omnipresence, right? Omnipresence being one of those incommunicable attributes of God. They, they're not shared with anyone, but attributed to the Spirit. Hebrews 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The eternal Spirit, eternality, another one of those incommunicable attributes of God. 2 Timothy 1.14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So we see these divine attributes of, of the Holy Spirit, omniscience, the Spirit who knows everything and even knows the mind of God, omnipresence, eternality, holiness. These are all those attributes of God, and there are more, but these, are, these four are attributes of God that are unshared. Um, and so Holy Spirit clearly being attributed Godhood there. Aside from the divine attributes the Spirit possesses, there are other indications of the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Ananias and Sapphira sell their house, sell their property, come to the church and go, here's all the money. And they go, really, all the money? All the money. And then we read this. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own after it was sold? Was it not your, at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So there it is. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. Now this pair of texts... Jeremiah 31, 34, 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31-34. through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Can we all just say, Awesome. Hebrews, Hebrews 10, though. Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews, again. Luke writing down one of Paul's sermons, um, is going to quote from Jeremiah 31. Here's what he says. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart, write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So, so who's the author of, of Hebrews say, spoke those glorious words of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. It's the Holy Spirit. Right. The, the words of the Lord, Yahweh, are the words of the Holy Spirit. Luke says the same thing in Acts 28 as well. 
So we'll, we'll talk more about the works of the Holy Spirit in the next thing, two months from now, Theological Foundations 2. Um, but we'll just note now that the Holy Spirit is distinct from God the Father and God the Son, but is fully divine. John 16, verses 13 through 14. And listen here to how the personhood of the Spirit is made evident. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. How do we see the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit in those verses? A mediator, right? What about the Holy Spirit's preferred pronouns? He, right? Personal. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. Certainly not the feminine of God, as the progressives are wont to say. No, the Holy... I just had this... I, uh, a former student of mine from Bethel wrote me uh, an email this last week. In her translation theory class, they were talking about taking scripture to new areas and translating scripture. And what do you do if you go to a matriarchal society? Since God is not gendered, shouldn't we translate it with feminine pronouns? so that those people can grasp it more easily. And I responded by saying, uh, God is always and only revealed in scripture with masculine pronouns. So no, we absolutely should not. And by the way, that would do the further good work of teaching this society, which is um, in error and wrong and upside down, that they shouldn't be a matriarchal society. <laughs> and she did not respond. So, there we have it. Masculine pronouns. Um, Jesus speaking of the Spirit uh, as a person. Holy Spirit possesses a mind. Holy Spirit possesses a will. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Imperson impersonal forces cannot be grieved. Only persons can. Holy Spirit can be lied to, as we just read from Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Holy Spirit can be resisted. We see in Acts 7, 51, the Holy Spirit can be insulted. The Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is sent both from the Father and the Son. John chapter 14, verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So, Jesus says, who's going to send the, the Holy Spirit? The Father will, in my name. And then in John chapter 15, verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So then Jesus says, I will send him to you from the Father. It's a similar statement to what Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John. I hold you in my hand and no one can snatch you out. The Father holds you in his hand and no one can snatch you out. It's that same idea. So, so the Son's role is to reveal the Father. The Spirit's role is to bear witness to the Son. 
John Frame again says, to generalize, the Father foreordains, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies the work of Christ to the heart. So Wayne, Wayne Grudem speaks of the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, that the very heart of the Christian faith is at stake in this. If the Trinity is not true, then we doubt the atonement. We, the, uh, the justification by faith alone is threatened. Uh, if the Trinity is not true, it would be idolatrous for us to worship Jesus. Um, we, we would need to, if, if, Jesus is, if, if Jesus is not truly God, we would be attributing our salvation to a creature rather than the creator. Um, the independence and personal nature of God would be in question. The unity of the universe would be undermined. And so, we'll, lastly, we'll talk about this idea of God's own pleasure within the triune Godhead. It's one of the, one of the unfortunate uh, things that happens at a lot of youth events where the speaker gets in this very deeply emotional thing of love needs an object. God needed someone to love, and so he made you. And the teenagers go, oh, the goosebumps. What am I feeling right now? This is wonderful. Uh, and we should just stand up and be blasphemy. You did it. Here it is. The teens should have called you out for your blasphemy. They don't talk a lot. They don't talk a lot. All right, God is one and exists in three distinct, fully divine persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is co-equal. Each person co-divine, co-eternal. Each person has a unique role in salvation and uh, in, the, in, in God's work in all of history and creation. And what characterizes this eternal union of the triune Godhead is pure joy, pure love, pure, perfect, radiant fellowship. There, there's no lack whatsoever. And that's why when the person does the dumb thing of saying God needed to make you so he had someone to love, we should tear our clothes and try to stone them right on the spot. Maybe not. That could be an overreaction. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. 1 Timothy 6, 15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The, 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 God is the blessed God. The, this word blessed is also translated happy, fortunate. That's who God is. God is a happy God. Matthew 25, verse 23. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be fulfilled. So what's the necessary assumption behind those two statements? This, these words we're longing to hear, you just dream of, of that. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. What, what's the assumption driving those two statements? 
He's got joy, yeah. right? It's not a great thing. Otherwise, it's like when I got married and, and we watched the video later of the people at the reception. My, my mother-in-law's like, I hope you two will be as happy as your father and I are. And we're like, we hope for much better. <laughs> they were divorced within two years of that video being made. <laughs> I trust they won't watch this. That statement only means something if this is a shining treasure, right? If this is what we want to attain to, enter into the joy of your master. If your master is not joyous, that's not a great reward. It's not a great incentive. But Jesus says, my joy may be in you, and what does that mean for us? Your joy may be full. Again, no lack. Matthew 12 Verses 18 through 21. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. These are the, the qualities of, of the servant. Who's the servant here that's being spoken of? Jesus. This is your moment. Yeah. It's your moment. God, God delights in, in these servant-like qualities, in the meekness of his son. He delights both in the servant-like meekness of his son and in the utter supremacy of his son. He will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. John Piper writes this in, in his book, Desiring God. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115.3. The implication of this text that is God has the right and power to do whatever makes him happy. That is what, that is what it means that God is sovereign. Think about it for a moment. If God is sovereign and can do anything he pleases, then none of his purposes can be frustrated. And if none of his purposes can be frustrated, then he must be the happiest of all beings. Absolutely right. God does whatever he wants. He, Piper says again, God is and always has been exuberantly happy. From all eternity, even before there were any human beings to love, God has been overflowingly happy in love for his son. He's never been lonely. He has always rejoiced with overflowing satisfaction in the glory and the partnership of his Son. The Son of God has always been the landscape of God's excellencies and the panorama of God's perfections, so that from all eternity God has beheld with indescribable satisfaction the magnificent terrain of his own radiance reflected in the Son. God is not constrained by any inner deficiency or unhappiness to do anything he does not want to do. If God were unhappy, if he were in some way deficient, then he might indeed be constrained from the outside in some way to do what he does not want to do in order to make up his deficiency and finally be happy. This is what distinguishes us from God. We have an immense void inside that craves satisfaction from powers and persons and pleasures outside ourselves. All right. Last thing here. The delight that the Father has in the Son. Matthew 3, 16 
and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17, 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. John 17, 26. Jesus prays, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I'll just read this quote from Piper here and be done with this one. He says, we may conclude that the pleasure of God in his son is a pleasure in himself. Since the Son is the image of God and the radiance of God and the form of God equal with God and indeed is God, therefore God's delight in the Son is a delight in himself. The original, the primal, the deepest, the foundational joy of God is the joy he has in his own perfections and he sees them reflected in the glory of his Son. From all eternity God has beheld the panorama of his own perfections in the face of his Son. All that he is he sees reflected fully and perfectly in the countenance of his son. And in this he rejoices with infinite joy. Is God an egomaniac? To rejoice in himself like that? I find my great, what if I stood and I, I find my greatest joy. My greatest pleasure in the whole world by looking in the mirror and saying, yeah. It's me. Yeah, the Stuart Smalley. What would be true of me if I said that? I'm a monster. <laughs> Why is it good that God feels this way about himself? There'd be something greater than him. It's good because this is true. We want God to feel this way about himself because it's true. There is no higher glory. There is no greater beauty. There is nothing more worthy of worship than God himself. And so... Uh, when, we, when we see God make statements about doing things for his own glory, and we consider God's love for his son being, uh, being uh, his satisfaction with himself and who he is, we say to that, yes and amen. Uh, and that is good news for us. Okay, Matt's going to take us on talking about election, I think. So. An additional comment, that's, that's why we get mad or frustrated Yeah, really what we're saying in those moments is you haven't seen yourself clearly. Yeah. Uh, and that's the point. God, in fact, has seen himself clearly. Uh, and therefore, it would, be, it would be a failure upon God to not glory in himself. Uh, so one of the things when we get to expositional homiletics in preaching that we're going to talk about is um, tension. Uh, how, how we think about creating tension in, in our sermons and what we're talking about that the, what is it that people should be considering when they come to the text? Uh, so I, I want us to do that just for a second in transition uh, between what Jason just talked about and then looking in on God's eternal purpose of election. Because we just talked about the happy God, right? The, the fully self-content, doesn't need anything, no lack within himself, uh, perfectly 
and forever joyful and satisfied in himself. So what do we do, thinking tension here, uh, what do we do with texts that talk about, uh, and I was grieved that I made them? Yeah, what do we do with texts that talk about that God is grieved over our sins? Uh, was, he, was he the happy God and then suddenly uh, Tony sinned extra bad today and he just kind of ruined God's day? And, and now God is just living uh, mostly happy but just super disappointed in Tony. Or super disappointed probably. in... <laughs> Tony's like, probably. Probably. Uh, it, like God really had intentions for the American election, uh, of which Destin, our friend from Canada, knows nothing about. Uh, and yet God is just sort of frustrated and wringing his hands at human events uh, as almost now he, he's gone from being sovereign to an outside spectator. Uh, how do we understand that? Uh, so part of what we're going to talk about in election, it has to be tied to God's ultimate sovereignty. And his immutability, that God does not change, uh, which includes the whole spectrum of human emotions to which we are prone. Uh, we can have moments where we're on top of the world and then somebody says something, somebody does something and our whole world crashes. Uh, now, we, we can sort of put that in the category of like eh, emotional instability, like I, I should have I held myself together better. Uh, but one of the unfortunate things of ministry, I, I say unfortunate, it's also a very privileged place to be, uh, is as you love and serve people, you will be there in those moments where their whole world shifts. Uh, and I, I, can, I can feel vividly uh, the experience of driving with a young lady from our church. Uh, her mom was being taken to the hospital and as we're driving, uh, and her and I are sort of, as it were, chasing the ambulance, uh, we got just to the outskirts of Fort Wayne, and I got a call from her brother, uh, who was right behind the ambulance, who said the ambulance stopped, they did CPR, uh, they lost her, she died on the side of the road. The ambulance is keeping going to the hospital, but she's gone. She didn't know that riding with me. Uh, she thought we're going to go to the hospital. We're going to pray for her. It's going to be a, a difficult recovery, but she's going to get through this. I knew what she didn't in that moment, which was um, your whole world just changed. It, it was right for her to suddenly feel these things. It is right for a just God to feel anger and wrath towards the sinful rebellion of man. And yet, how can that be true of the happy God? Are you feeling the tension yet? Good, let's jump in. The sovereignty of God can become so embroiled in debate that it becomes a doctrine to be debated rather than rejoiced in. It's those kinds of quandaries that had led people throughout the centuries to make uh, determinations about God based on human reason rather than what is clearly revealed in Scripture. So our confusion and concerns with this doctrine can strip it of its effect, which is intended to be in our lives, which is our joy. Remember, Jesus said, I want you to be in me so that your joy can be complete rather than feeling like we're just as unstable as everybody else around us. All right, so in this lesson, we're going to present the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty as something to be cherished. This should be the thing that sparks our worship before him. The hope is that even if you are initially hostile to this doctrine, uh, although I think times have changed since that line was written, uh, where 
I would be surprised if anybody came in with hostility towards the sovereignty of God. Uh, we may not have fully thought through all of the angles of it, uh, and yet, man, praise God, we, we have a church that just puts its feet squarely on the rock of God's sovereignty in all things. And we've seen that in the last couple years uh, as some families from our church have walked through really difficult, painful losses and stood on the sovereign goodness of God. Oh, it's, it's so encouraging. Uh, and yet, even if you were hostile, uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, has some beautiful words from this. Uh, from, and by the way, th these words kind of ring true of us. When, when Jay and I were growing up, uh, words like election and predestination uh, were four-letter words like in, in our circles. We didn't know that because they just didn't talk about it. But you really didn't say the Calvinist word because that, that was swearing. Uh, so much so that we had cousins out in Kansas who, when they were trying to insult each other, and I don't know why they did this, they would call each other, you Baptist church. <laughs> True story. Do you remember that? And the other one, now here's, here's the complete disconnect. The other one would call them a pizza hut. So I don't know how those two things <laughs> sync up together. Uh, but like we grew up with a hostility towards the sovereignty of God. All right. From my childhood, Edwards again, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he, it, people very rarely object to God's choosing uh, it's his rejection. Do you guys have this in your, yeah. in your notes? Okay. Uh, leaving them to eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. Uh, there's been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from, this from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense in God's showing mercy to whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will. God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as of anything that I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. I love that little qualification in there. Ah, oh, so precious. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. How do you get there? How, how do you get from this, this quandary of uh, fearing uh, God's sovereignty, uh, especially in those that he has uh, predestined towards eternal destruction? Uh, and I'll just tell you, based on stuff that is going on in our congregation right at this minute, uh, there are some who are very, very far from God. And it, their hearts and lives on just so many aspects are just testifying to that. And, it, and here is the hope of a pastor who is trying to serve them. Uh, I don't care how hard you push and how fast you run, you cannot unrun, outrun the sovereign God. Like if you belong to him, man, run all you want to. It's, it's going to be a lot of bumps and bruises along the way, uh, but God will have his own. Not a single one that the Father has given him has been lost, and God will go after them. Uh, and here's the other side of that. There are some who can come to our church and appear to be Christians uh, a long, long period of time, uh, and in the end, 
what we want to do is wring our hands and go, how have we failed? It, did, were we not clear on the gospel? Were we not clear on what it, what it means to trust God and be obedient to his word? And the reality is uh, I don't get to decide based on how much I like somebody who God has chosen eternally for salvation and who he has chosen for damnation. And so all we get to do is be faithful and pray and continue to love them and reach out to them, right? Okay, good. Uh, let's talk about some definitions here. Uh, Arminianism, uh, the theological tradition that seeks to preserve the free choices of human beings and denies God's providential control over the details of all events. In other words, it's going to put its heavy footfall on what we're going to talk about, the free will of man. Uh, versus another one of them, Calvinism, theological tradition named after the 16th century French reformer, Jean Calvin, that emphasizes the sovereignty of God in all things, man's inability to spiritually do good before God, to earn his salvation, to merit his own righteousness, and the glory of God as the highest end of all that occurs, as opposed to the glory and the happiness of man. Uh, compatibilism. It, it just seems like there's one too many I's and L's in that word. Uh, it, it's basically just saying uh, in the reformed view, it, it is in fact compatible that the sovereign God who rules all things in the universe can give a freedom of choice, a limited freedom of choice within boundaries uh, to human beings who make real choices that have real consequences that they're actually held eternally responsible for. Those two do fit together. We'll talk about that a little more. Uh, concurrence, an aspect of God's providence whereby he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Yeah, so uh, think of two things concurring at the same time. Uh, so you have man choosing to act and God uh, orchestrating those actions at the same time. So uh, he's directing all of the distinctives, all of the, the unique things, uh, and yet both of those are happening at the same time. Uh, man's choosing as well as God's sovereignty. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God yeah, hardened yeah, great example there. So how is that different from compat compatibilism? Compatibilism? Uh, it, it, it's the same. Uh, several of these are touching on the same basic ideas. Yeah, maybe just a different. Uh, so the one is saying it's not incompatible, and this is saying they're both happening at the same time. Uh, free will with respect to God. Uh, by the way, we should all believe in free will uh, with respect to God. Unconditional, unlimited free will. All things that God decided to will uh, but had no necessity to will according to his nature, uh, he does everything that he wants to, right? I do all that I want to, and he never has to ask my permission. I, I don't know. I don't know why he's chosen to do that. I got good ideas. With respect to man, uh, there is an essence of a freedom of the will, and yet it comes uh, with boundaries, with limitations. The ability that, to make willing choices that have real effects. So when, uh, from a reform standpoint, we talk about a freedom of the will, we're going to talk about they really are making choices. That This is not uh, some predetermined thing that is now turning them into robots. They are doing exactly what they want to do. Immutability, 
another term for God's unchangeableness. It, it, that's the divine character quality of God that says he does not change. That, that's why God doesn't have good days and bad days, happy days and sad days. Providence, the doctrine that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Uh, just a mind blower that we talked about in the last lesson. Uh, Through him, all things were created, that in Christ, all things hold together by the power of his word and his will. Does that include Satan? Yeah, God's holding Satan together right now. That's why Luther can say even the devil is God's devil, right? Uh, number two, under providence, uh, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. So God is, is steering, as it were, human events, human choices, human wills, uh, in a way that we have almost no ability to comprehend. Uh, the closest that we can come is when you read a brilliant classic novel where uh, the author is steering all of these lives to just sort of intersect and all of these uh, seemingly unrelated incidences until you get to the end and it's almost like the whole picture unfolds. That's as close as we can get. We literally have no ability to do that in our lives at all. If you doubt that, just have children and then wait 20 years and let's have another chat. Uh, the third thing under providence is he directs them to fulfill his purposes. This isn't just uh, towards their own heart and will and desire. It, everyone, uh, those who love God and those who reject God will fulfill his purposes. All right. Another term here, reformed. Another term for the theological tradition of Calvinism which, by the way, are in this area, uh, when somebody asks, what kind of church are you? Uh, and they're like, what do you, what do you guys believe out there? I, I usually say we are Reformed Baptistic. Uh, we believe in believer's baptism, and uh, we hold to Reformed theology. And they're like, oh, that's nice. That's nice. Because <laughs> if you say the C word at the beginning of the conversation, you just lost them. All right, good. Uh, sovereignty, C word being Calvinism, by the way. Uh, God's exercise of power over creation. There, there's so many other words that could get thrown in. I thought we should clarify. God's exercise of power over creation. Uh, as we read in the last lesson, he is the only sovereign. Uh, there are those upon this earth who call themselves sovereign. Kings call them sovereign. Uh, territories call them sovereign territories. But there is only one who is actually sovereign. And unchangeableness, which is the same thing as immutability, the doctrine that God is unchanging in his being, in his perfection, in his purposes, in his promises. Uh, yet he does act and feel emotions. I, I think that that is true, but that's not true in the way that we would uh, put human qualities upon him. That he doesn't feel things uh, and be moved in the same way that you and I are. All right, so we, we want to be careful with uh, even how we say that. Yeah, we should maybe rewrite that line. That, like, think about the immutability. We just we just read. Now, now think about this line. Yet he does act and feel emotions. He acts and feels differently in response to different situations. True or false? False. 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 <laughs> Unchanging. Heretic. Okay, good. Uh, God or ordains. Replace that one with a seity. 
Yeah. I just deleted it. All right. God ordains and governs all things. All right. So here's what I want us to think about for just a little bit as we examine the scripture to see whether the following assertions uh, are accurate in their summary of God's sovereignty. So this is first from Westminster Confession of Faith. You guys have this in your notes? Yeah. Okay. Uh, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold. We need to use the word doth a bit more. He doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of his glory, of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Not bad, Westminster. Not bad. So does God indeed ordain all things whatsoever comes to pass. And by the way, uh, we better have thought that one through before we just give a quick flippant yes to that. The answer, in fact, is yes, uh, but we better have a, a really well thought through um, defense of that. Does God govern all things? Yes. All right, so that we're going to look at a couple texts. There, there are a million. It, it's kind of like we talked about in the last lesson uh, language of sort of almost generic language in the Old Testament for God, uh, meaning God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, and then you, you start to hear more and more distinctions of, of the Spirit, the Spirit. Uh, we, we see things of the Son in the angel of the Lord and, and different promises and the Messiah that's coming. Uh, and we could be tempted to think, well, everything changed when you got to the New Testament. Uh, the, this progressive revelation like, oh, we, we've suddenly changed in the way that we're thinking and talking about God. Uh, the reality is, for those of us who grew up outside of the Reformed tradition, uh, it's the same type of thing. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were always there in the Old Testament. Uh, just in, in glimmer, in illusion. And it, it's becoming more and more clear uh, as it, it's ramping up to the New Testament. Uh, just like for us, when, when you begin to see these things of the sovereignty of God, you look back at the scripture and you go, it's everywhere. Like I, my whole life, I grew up thinking, uh, this can't be it. And then you look at it and you go, it's everywhere. It, you, can't, you can't get away from it. Every single text you look at seems to be pointing to the sovereign supremacy of God. It's like Taylor Swift at a Chiefs game. <laughs> I'm going to show her every 10 minutes. She's always there. <laughs> all right uh, so it, just a, we're, we're going to have a whole bunch of scriptures in here uh, ephesians 1 11 and 12 in him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory so uh just consider that phrase, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How many things are outside of that? Nothing, right? It, all things according to just exactly what he wants to happen. Uh, all things includes major events in history as well as things that seem small and trivial and insignificant in our own lives. Uh, notice the comprehensiveness of God's control in these verses proverbs 16 verse 33 the lot is cast into the lap 
but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it's the purposes of the Lord that will stand. JP here. And if someone should, do you guys have the Piper quote? Yeah. Uh, if someone should raise the objection of sheer chance and the kind of things that just seem to happen with no more meaning than the roll of the dice, Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, there's no such thing as chance from God's perspective. He has his purpose for every roll of the dice in Las Vegas and every seemingly absurd turn of events in the universe. I love that. So good. That doesn't mean that you just pray a lot and then you go to Vegas. Like that's your, your retirement plan. Uh, God may very well have predetermined that you lose all your money. Okay, good. Psalm 33, 8 through 11. Psalm 33, 8 through 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsels of the Lord, in contrast, stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. All right, so what's the difference between the plans of the Lord and the plans of man? I know you know this, but let's just go through the exercise of saying it out loud. What are the differences between God's plans, God's counsels, and man's plans <laughs> one subject to the other. Yeah, good. Which one? Which one? <laughs> Careful, you might be a heretic. <laughs> yeah, no, that that was that was good. In word of faith theology, uh, which one is subject gets flipped around. That God would love to do this, but he can't. He's limited himself until we speak it into existence. Man. Uh, what are some other differences between God's plans, God's counsels, and man's? His plans are perfect and ours generally are terrible. <laughs> God's are perfect, ours are terrible. His stand forever. Anybody else had to change plans before? <laughs> Recalculating. Recalculating. Rerouting. Uh, Daniel chapter 4. Somebody want to read this for us? Daniel 4, 29 through 35. And as, as whoever is going to read that, I want you to be thinking, what purpose did God have in humbling Nebuchadnezzar? What, what was the lesson that he was supposed to learn? Daniel 4, 29 to 35. I can do it. Okay, fire away. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal resident, <laughs> o King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. So his hair grew as long as eagles, eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and 
my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Good. Uh, so what was the lesson God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to learn? Who's in charge? Somebody else won't fill that out. That it wasn't by Nebuchadnezzar's hand all that was given to him. Yeah. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not ruling on your own. Uh, God is the one who gives authority to rule, who takes it. I love that he goes, by the way, the kingdom's been taken from you, and you don't even know it yet. Uh, one of my, fa- I don't, we don't have time for this story, uh, but one of my favorite stories that I heard because we hung out with stupid churches in the past Um, we were going to Bible college in the UK and like, we were just in these churches that one of their highest, uh, treasured values was if somebody could have a prophetic word from God, like the Bible's nice, but if God can speak it right now through a person, even better. And, uh, this whole, like the kingdom has departed from you. Uh, this prophet guy busts into the back of a service and this is in, uh, Northern England. Uh, dressed as an Old Testament prophet, uh, long robe with a big rope tying it around the middle, uh, long flowing hair. And his message is intended to be, uh, you've messed up so bad that the glory of God has departed from you. Uh, so he busts in in the middle of the sermon and says, uh, I see written over the door of this church. And, and it, in the Old Testament, uh, when, uh, they were saying that God's glory has departed. Uh, that word was Ichabod, which he got mixed up. And he says, God has written over this church, Michelob, <laughs> which is beer. <laughs> and then <laughs> for the glory of God has departed. And he turned and walked out and everybody busted up laughing, <laughs> which was the correct response. Also, maybe with stoning. Okay. Uh, so two uh, additional verses that clearly assert the sovereignty of God over all things. Lamentations uh, 3, 37 to 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. All right. So that just a whole bunch of scriptures. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to rifle through really quick here. Uh, Psalm 135, verses 6 and 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. Uh, It is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning and rain and brings forth wind from his storehouses. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Genesis 20, 2 through 6. Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she's of his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Story goes on. Uh, He brings her into his house as if he's going to have her as his wife. Uh, and in the end, verse six, then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. You didn't know. Uh, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That's a really interesting 
uh, wedding night thought right there. Amos chapter 3, verse 3 through 6. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when there's no prey? Does a young lion cry out of its den? Uh, if he's taken nothing, does a bird fall in a snare on the earth where there's no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it is taking nothing? Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does a disaster come on the city unless the Lord has done it? Yeah, like this is... That one turns serious all of a sudden in a hurry there. Isaiah 45, verse 7. God says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Uh, Occasionally, we end up praying against the wrong entity. God, they are trapped in their sin. They seem blinded to this. They are uh, being lied to by their sin. Would you, uh, would you stop the hand of the devil? That usually a good thing to pray. Uh, we do have to bear in mind that it may very well be God, as Romans one says. They have uh, rejected His clear commands and are therefore storing up wrath so God gave them over to the delusion in order that all might be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness is it possible that God would send a delusion on someone so that they might rightly stand condemned for rejecting God second Thessalonians 2 11 and 12 says that's exactly God's purpose in that there's a weight to this. This is why I say we dare not be flippant with this. Like that's that's an easy thing to sit here and hear until it's your kid. Right? Until it's your mom. Whatever that connection is. This people that we deeply, deeply love. Not only does God ordain and govern all things, but creation is dependent upon him for its preservation and continued existence. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And here it is. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The entire universe is upheld by the power of the word of Jesus. Uh, John Piper here. Uh, this all things includes the fall of sparrows, the rolling of dice. You guys have this in your notes, right? Yeah. So I'm not going to give you all the references. Uh, the slaughter of his people, the delusion of kings, the falling, the failing of sight, the sickness of children, the loss and gain of money, the suffering of saints, the completion of travel plans, the persecution of Christians, the repentance of souls, the gift of faith, the pursuit of holiness, the growth of believers. The giving of life and the taking in death and the crucifixion of his own son. Lest we find ourselves somewhere uh, in the middle of that and say, there's no way a good God could have done this. That same good God ordained the crucifixion of his son that we might be redeemed. Oh, he is infinitely more valuable than we. Colossians 1 that, that, that whole adage, you know how much something is worth by how much someone's willing to pay for it. Absolute crap. Uh, we are of no, no worth compared to the eternal Son of God. 
yet he has put value and worth on us in validating that image of God in which we were created. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. I, I say that's crap. I'm not even going to get to reading this because I'm going to keep interrupting myself. Uh, because what it does is it switches the glory of salvation. Salvation was all about how glorious, how good, how worthy, how valuable you are, rather than God did this for his own glory. Okay. <clears throat> He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Acts 17, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. I love that Paul hijacks a pagan uh, poem there to say, no, this is actually Jesus, even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. All right, so God foreknows all things. The question still remains, when did God devise his plan for creation in all history? Does God know in advance everything that's going to happen, or is he, like us, sort of surprised at what tomorrow holds? This is a particular concern because of recent popularity of the doctrine called open theism. Again, this is kind of a recent addition to the theological world. Bruce Ware. Proponents of open theism, in one sense, committed Arminians, that is, they affirm such cardinal Arminian doctrines as one, the universal and impartial love of God for all humanity. Uh, how subtly we work this in. Uh, God loves everyone. Oh, God, God loves you. God has already done all the work to save you because God sees how wonderful and valuable you are. You go far enough down that road and you lose the ability to actually say God hates sin. God judges sin. Number two, God's create. Do you guys have this in your notes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, God's creation of humans with what they often called a genuine or significant freedom of the will. And they're talking about libertarianism when it comes to uh, freedom of the will. Number three, necessity of such genuine freedom for true worship of God, love of God. I preached a sermon on this once because I was a turd. Uh, the human moral accountability. In other words, if, if God doesn't give us complete human freedom, then any worship response that we have towards him is invalidated. <sighs> I don't think I did, but it, it you know, yeah, it could have been worse. Could have been worse. <clears throat> right. Just keep that in mind this Christmas when you're giving gifts to your children. And unless I let them do literally whatever the hell they want to, and I don't say that in swearing, I mean whatever would rise from the bowels of hell to take hold of them, unless I do that, well then any uh, offering of love that they might have to me in response to my good gift, it's just forced. It's coerced love. That is nonsense. Nonsense. Uh, while embracing holy these Armenian commitments, open theists are also disturbed with other aspects of the Arminian theological tradition. Particularly, they object to the notion that the divine omniscience includes comprehensive knowledge of the future. In other words, God can't know what's coming. Why? Because man is the top of the pyramid. Omniscience, or this general sense that God knows everything that is knowable, must be defined, they say, as God's comprehensive knowledge of past and present only. Why? Because all future that is undetermined by God, and it includes all the free choices, all the actions people are going to make. It hasn't happened yet. And so you can't have any real knowledge that God would have of the future. You know what that means? 
Romans 8.28 doesn't exist. God works all things together for good, or at least he hopes to. But you have no hope for tomorrow if you are an open theist. Have fun in hell. 20 years ago, it wouldn't have even been necessary to have some of these discussions. Uh, so a, a C.S. Lewis quote here, everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. Quote from Mere Christianity. Yeah, in the church today, there's an increasing number of teachers and pastors who've rejected the historical doctrine and teach that God does not know the future. Uh, just a couple of examples here. John Eldridge, who's really popular with men's groups, right? His Wild at Heart book. God is a person who takes immense risk. It's the quote from him. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. How about this? The popular lyrics of Corey... I thought he had reckless love. Corey Asbury from Bethel Music, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. I trampled all over here. It. it was teamwork. Okay. It, was team, it was synergy. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that is, I actually heard uh, John Piper do an evaluation of that particular song. And he's like, I don't think he meant to, but this song is loaded uh, with Calvinistic sovereignty of God. Uh, you know, from before I was formed, like, God, you chose me in this. Like, it, it, it's just all over. And then it's sort of like spoiled by this thing of that God's love towards us could be reckless in any way. It is not. It is not. Uh, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it because I, I really want to go on a tirade. But we don't have time. Uh, so here's a good example of an open theist uh, teacher Greg Boyd, who you will come to hate in just a few minutes. My, uh, my old department head at Bethel told me one day, you're a real Greg Boyd type. <laughs> what in what you know about me would make you think I would take that as a compliment? <laughs> uh, in the Christian view, God knows all reality, everything there is to know. But to assume that he knows ahead of time how every person is going to freely act assumes that each person's free activity is already there to know, even before he, does, he freely does it. But it's not. If we've been given freedom, we create the reality of our decisions by making them. And until we make them, they don't exist. Thus, in my view at least, I'm glad he at least qualified it with that. There simply isn't anything to know until we make it there to know. So God can't foreknow the good or bad decisions of people. He creates until he's created these people and they in turn create their decisions. All right, come on class. What is the theological or philosophical starting point that Boyd is beginning with here? Is it man or God? Man. It certainly isn't God, and it certainly isn't the Word of God. God can't. My view, we make. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this, Greg Boyd, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. That, that stand firm uh, almost echoes when Job questions God, and God goes, Shut up and stand there like a man while I question you. And I love that God questions Job in a way. Uh, it's sort of like the, the old comedian thing of like the, 
the father asking his son questions and then he's like don't talk back to me you know like you don't get to answer me you just shut up while i ask you more questions remember this stand firm recall it to mind you transgressors gressers remember the former i sounded like uh oh what's his i'm derailing myself the scottish guy who sean connery transgressors Bond, James Bond. Remember the former, don't think of James Bond, think of God. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. What does he do? Declares the end from the beginning. From ancient time, things yet not done, saying my counsel will stand. Good grief, it took one verse to pull his whole philosophy apart. Just read the Bible. Notice the connection between the following two verses, all right? Uh, So uh, two verses in Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6, all right? So what's the connection here? For I know that the Lord is great, that our God is above all gods. Verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So what is it that the psalmist points to that says, tells us that our God is great and our God is separated from every other God? (laughs) It is Jesus, but what what is true? (laughs) What is true of Jesus here? Psalm 135. Yeah, let's just flip to it. Just look at it. Psalm 135. Verse 5 and 6. Verse 5, he says, I know the Lord is great, that the Lord is above all gods. And then he says, here's how I know that. He does all that he pleases. In heaven and on earth and even in all the depths. Like, here's how I know he's God. He doesn't ask, have to ask permission from anybody. The Lord is great because he does what he pleases. Unlike the other so-called gods. Uh, By the way, there's a ton of passages that talk about that. Um, I would just encourage you, just go on a sovereignty hunt in in your read of Scripture uh, and just delight in it every single time you see it. You don't have to try. You don't have to try. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it, and then you realize it's everywhere. Yeah, the, the, you, you keep putting it in the temple of Dagon, uh, this other supposed God, and he keeps falling over. Uh, and then his head, his seat of rule and his hands, his power to work are broken off when they go in. They're like, better do something with this. And then everybody gets hemorrhoids. And they celebrate it by making a golden hemorrhoid. I don't know what that looked like and putting it in the ark. Like, let's hold on to this moment. Oh, it's so good. God has such a sense of humor. Uh, so the point is really important. Like, it's kind of funny, but it's it's really important. Uh, let's, let's read a few of these together here. Isaiah, 40, somebody want to grab Isaiah 41, 21 through 23. We'll try and do this quick because our time is fleeting. Although, we'll just see how much we get done. Isaiah 41, who wants that? Got it. Okay. Uh, Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. And Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. I got it. All right, let's do Isaiah 41, 21, and 23. 
Yep, you're good. Oh, it, it just it felt so good. We should just keep going. Uh, Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I have formed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? All right, two more texts here real quick. Uh, just think about the fact that God knows the whole of our lives before we live a single day. Job 14, verse 1 and verse 5. Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. Verse 5, since his days are determined and his number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. The book In your book were written every one of them, the days before you formed me, when as of yet there were none of them. It, it just boggles my mind that dummies can say stuff like that with so many texts that just testify to the opposite. All right, uh, so God determines the numbers of our days. Uh, that should impact the way that we trust him, uh, believing that he is causing things. He's working in our lives. It's his perfect timing. Uh, I need not fear for what I for what can man do to me, Hebrews 13, 6. Uh, when we know that God has our lives in his hands, we are free to live more radical lives of discipleship. And we take risks. Like we can be those who take risks because we're trusting he takes none of them. Uh, even uh, losing our life for the sake of the gospel is not a risk for the believer. John 13, verse 19. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Literally, that I am. So Jesus uh, says, I am. It's another one of those I am statements from John. Uh, he's saying he is God. He's pointing back to the Old Testament uh, designation of Yahweh. I am that I am. Uh, the name of God. So according to Jesus in John 13, verse 19, when he says, uh, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you're going to believe that I am. Right? So his, his foreknowledge is actually connecting him with the eternal God who is omniscient and knows all things. Uh, John 14, 29, 
And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does, you may believe. 1 Samuel 15, verses 10 and 11, and then 35, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul the king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Verse 35, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king. All right, so all that we have talked about, I want you... Uh, to think about, to apply that to this, and then respond to this quote from our dear friend Gregory Boyd from his book, The God of the Possible. We must wonder how the Lord could truly experience regret for making Saul king if he was absolutely certain that Saul would act the way he did. Could God genuinely confess, I regret that I have made Saul king, if he could in the same breath proclaim, I was certain of what Saul would do when I made him king. I do not see how. Common sense tells us that we can only regret a decision we made if the decision resulted in an outcome other than what we expected or hoped for when the decision was made. All right, we'll just say it together, heretic. But after that, how do you respond to that statement? So when you say God is unchanging, how, how do you know that? Because he said in other places, I do not change. Because there's a wealth of scripture that testifies this is the nature and character of God, right? Immutable, unchanging. Okay. Anything else? Uh, he's he's anthropomorphizing God, like he's putting uh, God one to one with our human emotions and responses to things. Uh, what is the number one thing to which Boyd is appealing to come to this conclusion? Common sense. Common sense. Not not scripture, but the common sense shared by human. I heard somebody say it. Humanity, like that which all people know, tells me that this is what God must be like that is dangerous territory and yet the remedy is so simple that these were verses from first samuel 15 that we read 10 11 and then verse 35 verse 35 and the lord regretted that he made saul king over israel literally all you have to do is read the scripture in context first samuel 15 27 to 20 29 as samuel turned to go so this is right before that as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And the glory of Israel will not, the glory of Israel 
uh, capital letters of the glory of Israel being a name or title for God here. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. He is not a man that he should have regret. Just the context, like all of scripture is going to testify God is unchanging. Just this context tells us when God says, I regret that I've made you, I don't mean like you regret things. This is completely different. Oh, it's so simple. Yeah, it's easy to imagine God in our own image. It's idolatry to imagine God in our own image. It shows you, and this is really important for us because it's easy for us to look at Greg Boyd and be like, the stinking idiot. He's brilliant. (laughs) He is real smart, and he knows the Bible inside and out. Yeah. He has a prior commitment to something outside Scripture. That's what it is. And that is... Arminianism, it's it's human free will. It is human common sense, human reason, and which tells us, well, free will must be right. God's sovereignty must not be right. And it leads him to something that we can quickly identify as stupid. But if we have any commitment to something outside of Scripture that is our starting point, and that could be Reformed theology. Yep. It could be yeah. something good. Yep. Um, we are just as capable of ending up in a place that is on its face stupid and wrongheaded mm-hmm. and dishonors the Lord. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's essential for us to be sola scriptura people yeah. and to not let ourselves uh, free from that and to take, take God's word seriously um, every single time it speaks to us. That uh, little experience or no experience. Every single time we take God's word seriously. It gets more and more dangerous the more experience that you have. Because you start to operate out of uh, past knowledge, past study, past experience. Way. The same way. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And we start bringing assumptions to the text where even those of us who are exegesis people to the end of our ability... We start bringing eisegesis in. I'm reading things into the text. I, I'm bringing my own thoughts and presuppositions. And I, I love, 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 love that right from the beginning when we put together uh, some of the preaching team meetings, uh, going through a text of what one of the young guys was going to be preaching, uh, that in seeing it, one of the questions that keeps coming up is, yes, but where do you see that in this text? I, I get that's what you're saying, but where do you see it in this text? Because I don't see it there. And the fact that we have created a, a space and an opportunity to go, let's be careful with what we're saying uh, as a presupposition. If it's not in the text, let's not say it. Or let's be really careful about what we're saying. Like, that's the remedy. Uh, because like Jay said, we are in no way more brilliant than somebody like Greg Boyd. And we are just as prone to make the same mistakes if we, if we stray from sola scriptura. And, and I know we don't have time for this, but it's fine. We got to have time for it. Re- reverence is um, here's the danger: is we're sitting in a week long, whatever the number is, fifteen hours of lecture. We're trying to get through stuff quick. And we're reading a lot of scripture, and it's easy for us to just get through it. We're kind of mindlessly like, yeah. zip through it, zip through it. This is the word of God. Yeah. 
or on a Sunday morning, the scripture is being read and we're thinking, all right, I got to get up on stage because we're doing this song or we're doing that thing. That's the first step to ending up like Greg yep. Boy. Yeah. Uh, we and we we're all guilty of it, but in every way we can remind ourselves when the scripture is being read, God is speaking. Yeah. This is a holy moment. This is a and and yeah. There's times in a classroom setting we're going to be going through a lot of it and reading. We're not always going to have goosebumps, but um, that reverence. It's, ir- it's an irreverent thing to have some other starting point that we superimpose on the scripture. We take, we take it as a, weighty, as a weighty matter. And it's a good thing to remember because, like Matt said, the more, the more you're around it and the more you study, the easier it is for us, as insane as it is, to take it lightly. Um, so set your, set your course for your whole life to never take it lightly, yep. whether it's a devotional whether it's a brief reading with your kids, what, whatever it is, um, to to cultivate awe and, and reverence. Yeah. I, and can I just give you a really good example of that, uh, which is why our church is where it is today, and that's my dad. Uh, he has brought a level of humility to God's word and even towards his own ministry and today, just today, because he's preaching on Sunday, uh, he sent me his notes and I was going to put in the, um, the fill in the blank. And I thought to myself, when I read the fill in the blank for the scripture for Sunday, I'm like, I don't think this says what, quite what he wants to say. And it, there was just something because, uh, you know, having outside eyes looking at it, as opposed to you're just in it and, and you're kind of going along with the flow. Um, and I thought, oh, no. I think we probably need to change this, but I want to tread really careful in going, I think we might actually be saying the wrong thing here. And this is why I'm like, I'll just hold them up all day as an example of godly humility when it comes to God's word. I, I uh, called him and I said, hey, here's, here's what I think it's accidentally saying. Uh, here's what I think we really want to say. And he could have uh, gone back to uh, Yule Brenner from the Ten Commandments Uh, So let it be written. So let it be done. You know, like I've said what I've said. Uh, And what he did say was, give me a couple minutes. And then he sent back a revised version of it that hit right in the center of the target. And we just had a little mini preaching team meeting is what happened. And after what, 45 years of preaching experience, he's still walking in humility. I love it. I love it because that gives us permission to not get it right every time. But we're surrounding us our, ourselves with guys who are going to help us semper reformanda. Always be more faithful to God's word. Awesome. Good job, Dad. All right. God never sins. We, we got to pick up the pace here. Uh, God never sins. God governs all things. He foreknows all the choices that we will make. He ordains all the choices and everything else. This strong affirmation of God's sovereignty is bound to raise at least two objections. Number one, if God ordains all things, does he ordain evil? Isn't he then guilty of committing evil? Number two, if God ordains evil, isn't he unjust in punishing evildoers? So is he guilty? And then is he unjust? 
All right, uh, so just for the sake of time, I'm gonna shrink this puppy down and move it to the other screen, which is really going quick. I am just saving time like crazy here. Okay, I'm gonna read these and I want you to think about them and then answer the question, how are you gonna summarize them? Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, the God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. All right, how do you summarize those texts in your own words? You don't have to give us a full thing. Just give us part of it. God is perfect and therefore cannot sin. Yeah, he's perfect. He doesn't sin. That's an important starting place. He's the embodiment of justice. <laughs> I like it, yeah. Yeah, not only is he not evil or wicked or doing evil or wicked, he is justice. <laughs> he's, he's not Batman. <laughs> how about the how about the one from James? When we are, I'll give you the answer. When we are tempted, we don't get to blame God, right? It, it's coming from the wickedness in our own heart. Why? Because the, in him, there's no darkness at all. All right, let's do that again. Same, same basic thing. Uh, Genesis 18, verse 25. Uh, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Uh, Ezekiel 33, 17 to 20. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. When the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by them. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to your ways. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God for the works for by the works of the law, no human being shall be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Revelation 16, five through seven. I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you holy one who is and who was you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. All right, give us, give us a summary of some of the stuff that's in there. Yeah. 
He's a perfect judge. We should be careful if we suggest otherwise. Uh, one of my personal favorites is uh, in Ezekiel there where he's like, you're saying that God isn't just. In reality, you're not just. It's you. And then that warning at the end, oh, house of Israel, I will judge you according to your ways. Your ways that aren't just and you don't even know it. So he's just, he's the judge, but he's also the one that sets the standard by which he makes the Good. Yep. We don't get to do that. He, he judges. Good. Uh, there's a ton more that we could dive into that, but I think for the sake of time, let's just drop her there. Uh, God is in no way unjust in his judgments. Rather, uh, it is man that is unjust. Uh, no one would be able to object to the just of justice of God when he judges the world. Uh, he only gives evildoers what their sins deserve. Therefore, we must say that the Bible plainly teaches uh, the following two propositions. Number one, God foreknows and ordains everything that comes to pass. Number two, God is not the source or the author of evil and he is not unjust to judge the wicked. So how, how can we reconcile those two things? Uh, consider this illustration. Imagine the sun being a living thing. If the sun, rather than being a giant burning star, uh, was a living thing, uh, and it had the power to not only shoot out rays of light, but it had the power to suck them back in, right? So it in that way, the sun could choose where the light would go and where the light would not be. All right. So you, you tracking with me so far? Uh, does the sun then create darkness? No. And yes. By absence. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so is there any darkness in the sun itself? No. So is there any sin or temptation of sin in God himself? No, he is, he is light. He is justice. He is righteousness. He is holiness. Uh, rather, darkness is the absence of what the sun is. When the sun chooses to pull back its beams of light, in its wake falls darkness. Right? Does that make sense? The absence of light is filled with darkness. So in that way, the sun has complete control over the darkness even though it's not darkness itself, it's the absence of that sun's light, holiness, righteousness, uh, following the illustration towards God. And yet it doesn't cause the darkness. Now, obviously, illustrations always uh, have a bit that's missing from them. Uh, and yet with God, it, this is why we begin with election. Right? It, we have to start with this, uh, where scripture starts, that God has chosen uh, some for righteousness and some for destruction. And on those that he has chosen for destruction, we find Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because he was pulling back light from him so that the darkness might be unveiled and then destroyed. Right? And God would look glorious so that, in saving his people. So that we would say that on those whom God sheds his light, Yeah. 
God's grace alone, right? Because none deserve, none deserve the light, all deserve the darkness, all deserve God's judgment. Yeah, and that's the part we generally forget, that apart from God's grace, we all with humanity start in the same camp. Like we all deserve the same thing, that we all are rebels against God deserving of his just judgment. I think piggybacking off of what you said, uh, it's, I think it's, yes, it's true that like it's almost a, not, not necessarily like wrathful, but an act of the just God to pull the light away from Pharaoh for yeah. the sake of the example. But it's also like in sovereignty and God's plan, he crushed Pharaoh so that he might exalt himself and mm-hmm. free his people. So there was, there was also a sense of glory as he took away or he hardened his heart for the coming future yeah. for his people. Yeah. So it wasn't just just wrath, but still glorifying him in whatever he does. Yeah. Uh, it should bring us back to that thing of humility uh, when we see other people rebelling and walking in sin rather than leading towards our frustration it to, should lead us to again to that place of worship and going god apart from your grace that's where i would be even with your grace i feel the tendency i feel the pull towards that uh, oh god have mercy on me a sinner and it, it causes us to rejoice in our great salvation rather than look with condemnation down on somebody else all right <clears throat> human moral accountability <clears throat> Anybody know the Heimlich? God foreknows and ordains all things, whatever comes to pass. Number two, God by no means commits evil or is evil himself or judges evildoers unjustly. All right, so now let, let's look at a third truth here. Human beings are responsible for the choices they make, and they make those choices willingly. Again, this third statement could be supported by a whole bunch of texts. Uh, we're just going to look sort of representatively at a couple of them here. Second Samuel 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Go take a census. Go count the people. All right? Second Samuel 24, verse 10. But And what was the motivation in that? You remember? The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and so he incited David. Go count the people. Uh, 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I, I have done very foolishly. Who incited him to it? God did. Who's responsible for it? David. David. First Chronicles 21, verse 1, and then verse 7 and 8. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. But God was displeased with the thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in what I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted foolishly. By what means did God incite David? Satan. Right? So in one version, it says God incited. In the other one, it says Satan incited him. All right. So who's responsible for this great sin? Yeah. David. Uh, Does God bear responsibility for tempting David in this sin? No, but he's going to use that sin 
for his own purposes. I mean, the, the whole idea of not taking the census was that you might not put your trust in the power of man. Like, let's count our fighting men to see what our odds are in the world around us. And God says, trust in me, trust in me. You're not trusting in me? Go ahead, count them. Right? And then he brings judgment on that. All right, another important text in regard to Joseph's statement of God's sovereignty at the end of the book of Genesis, which hopefully, just finishing that, we're pretty familiar with. After being stripped by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison, forgotten by someone that he had just saved, Joseph addresses his brothers with, you creeps. No, that's not what he says. Genesis 50, 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God as for you? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as it is here today. So when, when Joseph says you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, uh, like what's he talking about there? And are Joseph's brothers still accountable for what they did? Yeah, so the fact that God meant it for good, does that alleviate them of the burden or the weight, the consequences of their sin? No. That, that, if that were true, then they could walk up to him and be like, hey, you should be thanking us. Because <laughs> <laughs> because of us. Oh, you're by rich. the way, you're welcome. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we just talked about this in the adult Sunday school class uh, that uh, God uses that in such a way to save everybody. But Joseph's response is there's just judgment that should come and it should come from God. Am I in the place of God to bring that? No. Implication, God's going to take care of business. All right. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility can be most clearly seen, however, in the interplay at the most decisive event in history, the crucifixion of Christ. Matthew 25, 26, uh, sorry, Matthew 26, verses 24 to 25. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who had betrayed him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, Yep. Matthew 27, verse 1 through 4. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away, delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. Matthew 27. 20 through 25, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to destroy Jesus. The governor said to them, uh, which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Matthew 27, verse 27, and then 31 and 36. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him, verse 31. 
And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe. They put uh, his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled him to carry the cross. And when they came to the place of Golgotha, which is the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. Acts 3, 13 through 15, and then 17 and 19. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. What an indictment that is. Verse 17, and now, brothers, I know that you acted ignorantly, you did also, you, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. It's amazing that that's even on the table. It should just be, you have done this. Depart from me. Repent, that your sins may be blotted out. Who saw that coming? Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... Uh, and he's going to finish that in verses 10 and 11. Let it be known to all of you that all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified with God, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, that the builders, which has become the cornerstone. In Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? From these texts, who's responsible? Who's on the hook? Judas kicks it off, right? Everybody who played a part in it. The Roman soldiers that uh, nailed him to the cross and then divided up his robes. They're, they're on the hook for it. Uh, the Jewish people who weren't even uh, there present, they're just part of the Jewish people in general. Peter's going to go, you crucified. You killed the, the author of life. Nice job. <laughs> right everybody and yet who else is responsible for the death of jesus christ god the father like all this was done according to the uh, foreknowledge of god they did exactly what god had planned so we see that god ordains evil in such a way that humans are still morally responsible humans make real and willing choices to do evil that they do uh, we can go 
can we go any further in our explanation? Is there any other way to reconcile this paradox, this mystery of the faith that God uh, is so ordaining things and yet people are also responsible at the same time? Uh, there's a lengthy excerpt from Jonathan Edwards. Is that in there? Uh, and then uh, Piper has uh, sort of summarized it. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you right now. Uh, just give you a little bit of a summary. Uh, whatever we do, we do because we want it the most. It, it's going to be described in there as our strongest motive. What is the thing that we believe to be the greatest good? Unless we are physically prevented from doing so. So you, you may say, uh, if you see uh, someone about to horribly, horribly murder your family, uh, the greatest good is for me to throw myself in the path of the bullets that I might save my family. Unless, of course, you've been chained to a chair and then because of natural necessity or inability, you can't do it, right? So I, I will do the greatest good unless I'm physically prevented from doing the greatest good. In every evil choice, therefore, we are choosing what we want to do. That's super important. Like in every evil choice, people are doing exactly what they want to do. In ordaining the evil choices that we make, God is not coercing us to do it. He's not making us do something that we don't want to do. He's not physically compelling us, making us do this thing, but rather is working in such a way that our preferences and our desires, the thing that we have deemed as the greatest good, uh, God allows that to be realized uh, with the ultimate purpose that he's bending all things according to his will. Uh, an illustration of this, I can choose to eat whatever food that I prefer, that which I like, I can't, however, choose my preferences. I don't get to choose what kind of food that I like the most. Now, you can cultivate preferences, but at the end of the day, all wise people know tomatoes are gross, right? Amen. Mushrooms, disgusting. Why ruin a perfectly good hamburger? Uh, the reality is, though, in the grace of God, in the salvation of God, in spiritual new birth, he gives us new taste buds. Like all of a sudden, we want things, we desire things, we prefer things that uh, the old self does not. And from that time on, he gives us the ability to choose things uh, because he's given us new desires. And uh, as Paul is going to say, to put off the old man with his desires and wants and to put on Christ and the good in its place. So do we have a freedom of the will? Uh, do we make choices that have real effects in our world? Well, the answer is, of course, yes. But when most people talk about free will, they're talking about undetermined choices, no boundaries on those choices, uh, an ability to ultimately decide good or evil for myself uh, without any limitations. But it, it's, it's generally philosophically incoherent. It, it doesn't stick together in the way that they talk about it. And the favorite illustration of that is, if you have free will, prove it, fly around the room right now. Well, of course I can't do that. Well, no, because you've been born into a world with certain limits and restrictions that are put upon you, right? Uh, one of the things Edwards is going to argue in that uh, statement, which, by the way, read it eight times is probably a good idea, uh, is that because we do what we want, what we believe to be the greatest good, uh, most of the time what ends up happening with us uh, is we make those choices, even when we believe 
Sin is the greatest good. Wickedness is the greatest good. Uh, that we are choosing things that are contrary to God, contrary to his word. Uh, and yet uh, it's that deciding what's good and evil. And yet God is at work within that. It, he's not forcing us to do those things. All right, there's a whole bunch more that we could say about that, but I think we'll just leave that there. All right, just for the sake of time, let's transition real quick. If you have to go to the bathroom, just go where you are right now. We will we'll deal with the fallout later. Uh, we're going to jump into lesson six, even though I don't know that we're going to get through the whole thing. We're not. <laughs> Tonight's School of Ministry brought to you by Depends Undergarments. Good. Over to you, Captain. Okay. All right, so we're, we're going to keep on this topic of um, God's eternal purpose in election. What, what we're talking about, uh, beginning with election, and we're going to get all the get through these um, as we go through these systematic theology classes. Uh, it's the five points of Calvinism, um, dealing with God's sovereignty in salvation. Um, so some, some of these definitions, uh, common grace, it is that grace that God gives um, to everybody. Uh, it's the grace that everyone receives. The rain falls, the sun shines on the just and the unjust alike. Uh, determinism. Uh, it's one of those things that, that Calvinism is usually a, accused of um, wrongly. It's the idea that, that it's all inevitable. It's all been determined beforehand. Uh, so what's the point of any of it? Human will never comes into play. Uh, it doesn't matter what we do or what we don't do. Similar to one we'll see uh, in a little bit, fatalism. Uh, election. It's the act of God before creation, before the foundation of the world. Uh, where he chooses some to be saved, not because of any goodness, not because of any merit, uh, but because of his own sovereign good pleasure. Uh, fatalism, again, it's this thing that Calvinism is wrongly accused of by people who don't understand it. Um, that human choices, human decisions, they don't make any difference whatsoever. What's going to happen is going to happen. Uh, and that is, that is not what... Calvinists believe that is not what the doctrine of election is saying. People make real choices. The choices have consequences. Uh, we will be held accountable, as we just saw, for the choices that we make. Uh, foreknowledge, relating to the doctrine of election. Uh, it is personal, relational knowledge that God has. Um, and it's really connected to uh, his salvation. So we see that in Romans, uh, in Romans 8. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, uh, so this is not knowing facts about someone. To be foreknown by God is to be foreloved by God, forechosen. Uh, predestination. It's another term for election. It's just a scary one, but it's a Bible word. <laughs> Uh, it just means to choose beforehand. Uh, it, in Reformed theology, uh, th this term has generally got the, two, the two-sided components. It is, it is God's choosing, his electing of his own, and it is also reprobation for non-believers. So it is God's choosing and God's not choosing. 
Uh, reprobation then is God's sovereign decision before creation to pass over some, uh, to, to not save them, uh, to punish them for their sins, to give to them justice instead of grace. Uh, and we see that we, we, we uh, Daniel 4, um, earlier, um, I don't know, an hour and a half ago, whatever time it was, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? What it got, Nebuchadnezzar is this arrogant, wicked, terrible man, the, the pinnacle of, of power uh, in Babylon, God's enemies. They're such enemies of God that they're, Babylon's referred to all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. Like we, we hate Babylon and Bob, Babylon hates God. And what does God do to Nebuchadnezzar ultimately? He saves him. He saves him. He, 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 yeah, he makes him go insane for the purpose of his salvation. We see Nebuchadnezzar uh, declare God to be the one true God. God saves him. In the next chapter, Belshazzar, who's just like his, I think his grandpa, Nebuchadnezzar, what does God do to Belshazzar? Kills him, <laughs> right? What, what's the difference between the two guys? God's choosing. God's good pleasure. Uh, the revealed will of God. God's declared will concerning what should we should do, what God commands us to do. The revealed will of God is the will of command. It's what, what God commands us to do in Scripture. The secret will of God, or God's will of decree, is that which he actually governs the universe and determines is going to happen. And we'll get into that, not tonight, I don't think. Uh, but God makes commands in Scripture, and we all know that sometimes those commands don't get carried out in people's lives. Um, special grace, the grace of God that brings people to salvation, known as saving grace. All right, so the justification of God. Romans 9, incredibly important chapter in understanding all of this. Any discussion of God's sovereignty, human accountability, the doctrine of election has got to deal with Romans 9. And I was in a, in a class once and the professor, this topic came up and the professor's like, don't go to Romans 9. Don't try to get it. I'm like, like, let's like saying, teach me how to drive a car. Don't use a key to turn it on. Uh, it is considered a difficult passage. It's really not. It's pretty straightforward. It's, it's not hard to understand. It's hard to accept as it is with many of these truths. They're not hard to understand. They're not unclear in scripture. They're hard to accept. Uh, those who argue against a Calvinistic um, reading of this chapter argue that Paul is concerned with nations, not individuals. And again, part of this is springing from, we put a certain pair of glasses on before we read our Bible and it colors everything that we see. And so if we've got this, these glasses on that say, well, it can't be God's sovereign choice. Man ultimately has to be responsible. Then we're going to have to figure out how that works if we want to still call ourselves Bible people. So a few quotes from an Arminian perspective. And we shouldn't be afraid of those words, Arminian and Calvinist. It's just shorthand ways for saying, I basically believe this about salvation. It's usually Arminians who go, you follow a man, you Calvinists. And it's just because they don't actually realize that they're called Arminians, and that's named after a guy too. And technically, he started it. Okay, so uh, here's a couple 
a couple of, of thoughts on this from their perspective. The absolute election of Jacob has reference simply to the election of one to higher privileges as the head of a chosen race rather than the other. It has nothing to do with their eternal salvation. In the world to which St. Paul is referring, Esau is simply a synonym for Edom. Another one, the reference here is not to salvation, but to a position in historical test. Like the quotation from Genesis 25, 23 in verse 12, the elder shall serve the younger. Romans 9, 6 through 13 is therefore speaking neither of individuals and their selection for salvation, nor of the spiritual Israel, the Christian church. It speaks rather of the patriarchs who, without exception, became founders of people. So th th this is a lot of what happens. Uh, it's, it's talking about nations. It's not talking about individuals. Now, what are nations made up of? Individuals. What's the example that he uses in Jacob and Esau? Individuals, right? And, and so... We have a great example of that today. In fact, it's happened in the last couple of days. As people are protesting the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians... And they're on all of our major college campuses chanting things that have the echo to them of uh, let all the people of Israel be destroyed. And I, I forget the exact term. Somebody can tell me what it is. I, I don't care. Uh, Antifada. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're, they're asking the question like, wait a minute. When you say that, you're, you're actually talking about the genocide of the Jewish people. And they're like, no, no, no. What, what we mean is the nation of Israel. Right. What about the people in the nation? We have them too. We'd like them dead. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, to see Palestine will be free. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's another one. And it, it just, it's this same principle where we're shifting it down because we're not actually thinking, wait, we're still talking about people here. Right. But we've evolved beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. <laughs> All right, open, open up to Romans 9. Open up to Romans 9. You can do a little walkthrough. Okay, Romans 9. You got it? Yes. Romans 9. Somebody read the first five verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Okay. You hear the grief here, right, in Paul's, in Paul's words. Um, Israel, this people of lofty privilege, this people of, to them... Uh, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. But what's the problem with them? Christ. They're cut off. They've been cut off from Christ. Um, and, and Paul says in verse 3, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. In other words, they are accursed and cut off from Christ. They are, they are, they are, the, the, they have broken the covenant with God. And we, we just read in the last, 
in, in the last uh, lesson, all these Old Testament covenantal statements. And, and we read in, in, the fir- in our first one tonight from, from Jeremiah 31, speaking of the, of the new covenant, the glory of the new covenant is so beautiful because the old covenant was broken and it's gone. God uses language of divorce. And so this is the problem. So uh, th- this problem raises an objection. And Paul is, is answering an opponent throughout Romans 9. The objection is this. God's word has failed. Right? Because Israel's God's chosen people. God's made all these promises to them. He, he even made promises to, to uh, David. Right? That, that your offspring will sit on the throne forever. Uh, and so, so, as we go on, somebody read for us how Paul responds to that objection that the word of God has failed, starting in verse 6 through verse 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are dead, descended from Israel, belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted as offspring. For this, this is what the promise says. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of work, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Okay, so so um, first we see uh, with Abraham, God chose Isaac, didn't choose Ishmael, and we go, well, no kidding, right? Isaac Isaac was the legitimate heir, the legitimate son. Ishmael was, was the illegitimate um, but he doesn't stop there. He goes to Jacob and Esau uh, to make it perfectly clear. Jacob and Esau are twins. And God says, I chose Jacob over Esau. And as we read that account, we, we see the whole story of Jacob and his trickery. Uh, Esau is apparently gross uh, so that Jacob could cover himself in an animal skin. And his dad's like, I think it's the guy. Um <laughs> <laughs> but but um, so we see how it all unfolds. But now Paul's giving us insight into what's going, what's driving all of it. This wasn't happenstance. What what do we see? Why did God choose Jacob over over Esau? Okay, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Um, In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Right. This is why. Why did I love Jacob? Why did I hate Esau? In order that God's purpose of election would stand. Well, how does that show us anything about God's purpose of election? What is it? What what things does God's choosing of Jacob, not Esau, show us? Right? We see that. We just talk about it. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. God's choosing an election. Right. He chooses some for salvation, passes others over. Right. In, in fact, he he tells us that doesn't doesn't he? Um, verse eleven, 
They were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. What's God telling us here? Well, Paul's telling us God wasn't looking through the corridor of time and seeing who would choose him, and he retroactively chose them. That's an Arminian view because they have to deal with the word election, and they have to deal with the word predestination because they're Bible words, and that's how they deal with it. God looks through the corridors of time. He learns something about how you will respond and then retroactively chooses you, which is, by the way, how we get to open theism. Open theism is the logical conclusion of Arminianism. But what happens the minute we discuss God learning something in the future? And they wouldn't use the word learn, but what else is it? We just have a big problem. <laughs> it's Right? Okay, heresy, blasphemy. No, God did not learn anything. So Paul says God wasn't looking ahead at their actions. That statement makes no sense whatsoever if God was looking ahead at faith that they would generate from within themselves. It, it, it's a senseless statement, if that's true. And then it is, and somebody said it, the older will serve the younger. God turns the whole family unit on its head to go, I pick who I want to pick. Uh, God can choose whoever he wishes. And, 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 you know, we hear of Esau seeking the blessing with tears and not receiving it. Uh, it's staggering. We can talk about this in the hypothetical. We're talking about two, two guys. God chose one and didn't choose the other based on which one was older. And we might be tempted to think Esau got the shaft in that. Was God being unfair to Esau? No, of course not. He's never been unfair to anyone. Not one moment. Uh, okay, keep going. Verse, uh, verses 14 through 18. Okay, thank you. So here's how we know we're understanding what Paul's getting at with Jacob and Esau correctly. It's because of his opponent's accusation, which is the exact same first accusation that our opponents will give to us when we say we believe in election. And it is this. That's just simply not fair. That's simply not right. My old department head at Bethel said, if God was like that, I wouldn't worship that God. Yeah, it's a problem. Uh, and so, so that's, that's the first thing that comes. This is not fair. This is injustice on God's part. Everyone goes to hell. Right, right. And so Paul, he doesn't go. Here's what he could have done to solve all this. No, 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 brother, you misunderstand. That's not what I meant at all. He doesn't do that. That's how we know he's saying exactly what we claim he's saying right here. Uh, he could have cleared it up immediately, and he doesn't do that. He doubles down. 
He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's the answer. It's the answer Job gets. Where were you? Where were you? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul says it's all about mercy. The question of fair does not come into play when we're talking about salvation. It is all about mercy. It is all of grace. And then he points to Pharaoh. For this very reason, I raised you up that my name might be proclaimed. How was God's name going to be proclaimed through Pharaoh? Literally killing him. I made you the most famous man in the whole world so I could kill you publicly with ease. That's how he wanted to do it. So then he has mercy, he says again, on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills because he's, he's hearkening back to what we read about Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart as Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Uh, way, verse 17 makes a great imprecatory text for somebody that you're really like, hey, I just want you to know I'm, I'm praying for you. And then he just said that. For my very purpose, for this purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you. They're like, oh, that's awesome. I thought we were enemies. <laughs> 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 oh no <laughs> and so um we we see this this clear statement um uh that 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 paul makes and then all right well we're we're out of time so do you guys want to get through this last little yeah. paragraph real quick okay um so now it, it goes on. It goes on. Uh, verse 19. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? Here's question number two. For who can resist his will? Question number one, and it's the same two questions we still get. The same two accusations. Number one, that's not fair. Number two, well, how's anybody responsible for anything? Sometimes this question takes the form of, why do we pray? Sometimes this question takes the form of, well, what does it matter then what we do? It's all determined, but it's all, it's all that same question. Why does he still find fault? Who could resist his will? It's determinism. It's fatalism. Verse 20, we get the same answer that Job got. No explanation. No, I'm sorry, brother, you misunderstand. No, let me gently take you by the hand and explain this to you. We get this. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what's molded say to its molder? Why have you made... Uh, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel to, for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand? What an answer. What a response. You... You can, you can see what rises up in Paul when someone accuses God. You, you can see his response to the arrogance that is really driving this thinking. The man-centered, man-glorifying arrogance that is driving. It needs to be in our hands, not in God's hands. We are more trustworthy with it. I say this to people all the time because what people reject in, in election is they start thinking of their loved ones that aren't saved. I always tell them, do you think your goofy son-in-law, you trust him more than you trust God with this? Like, he's a dork. You know he is. 
Why do you trust him with this? Trust God. Don't you trust God? That, but it's, it's this, it's this man-centered arrogance is driving this, and Paul's going to have none of it. Paul just says, who do, you, who do you think you are? God can make you fine dinnerware, or he can make you a chamber pot, and he has not done wrong by you. You deserve to be a chamber pot. If you end up on the dinner table, it's because God chose to be exceedingly kind to you. He has mercy on whomever he wills. And so, was somebody... Yeah. It's always because they have a loved one that's struggling with it. Now they're going to change their position because they don't want to yeah. offend their child or their brother or whoever because now that person's more right than God. Yeah. Or at least I don't want to take a stand and have to suffer for my faith because right. tell them what they're doing is wrong. Right. Yeah, it's always something like that. And, and anytime somebody diverts from biblical faithfulness on those issues... The first question is always like, who are you wanting to have sex with? Because it's somebody. <laughs> like that's always, you know, you hear about these famous Christians or you hear about somebody and they're like, well, they, they've apostatized or they've walked, like, yeah, you want to have sex with somebody or your kid's having sex with somebody right. that they shouldn't. That's what you do. Anyway, okay, let's close with this. This is such good news. This is such good news. Verse 22, here's the answer Paul gives after a, a stern finger in the, in the chest saying, who do you think you are? He says this, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, it's right, it's right for God to desire to show his wrath and to make known his power. What if he's endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? We have this thing in us that, that wants to rise up in our flesh and say it's not fair. Oh, how could God do this? How could God hold anyone responsible? And Paul's answer is, Christian, it's for you. It's, 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 it's to, to display his glory in his might and in his wrath and in his justice. And the wrath of God is every bit as much who God is as his love is, as his mercy is. He's every bit as glorified in his wrath as he is in his love. But he says, what, 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 number one, he's endured with great patience. Any vessel for destruction, he's been abundantly kind to abundantly patient with he has given them far better than they deserve and then he says he did it to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory he elected you from before the foundation of the world not because of anything good in you and then everything he's done and that includes the passing over in judgment of vessels of wrath he's done that so a billion years from now you're going to be blown away at his power and his glory and his mercy to save. That, 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 that you are never, ever, ever, ever going to fully wrap your mind around. He saved me. He saved me. You won't have been in the new heavens and the new earth long enough to ever be like, I get it now. I get why he chose me. No. No. 
No, that's the answer. It is God who is far bigger than us, far better than us. And that everything he does is his kindness and his goodness and brings the utmost glory to him. And that is what's driving our understanding of this topic so we don't come to it arrogantly. We sometimes hear the arguments of people and we get tired of them because the same old tired argument that Paul answered in Romans 9. And it can be frustrating. But the truth of this should produce in us such a comprehensive humility that we're not even tempted to spout off. What, what a God. What a God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening together. Lord, what a joy and a privilege it is to come together to study your word, to study to know our God. Lord, we do desire to study to show ourselves well, well approved. Lord, we, we desire to be faithful with your word in whatever area we are granted the great privilege of teaching it. Whether that's in our homes, with our families, whether it's in our own study, whether it's, whether it's the weighty call to the pulpit. Lord, whatever it is, we, we do want to be faithful. We want to study to show ourselves well approved. But what a, what a glorious thing it is to, to hear of you and your great works in your word. To know the extent of your kindness and mercy to us, of which we're just scratching the surface and can't fully comprehend. But what you have revealed to us in your word is mind-blowing and it is glorious and we rejoice in you. You truly are worthy of worship. You're worthy of all glory and all honor forevermore. And you are worthy, Lord, of our trust. Lord, let the doctrine of your sovereign election be a soft pillow we lay our heads down on at night. Let it be a comfort to us, Lord, in the trials that we face in this life. Let your sure promises, let your sure promises and the, the testimony of your grace to us in Christ be that which provides us strength to overcome temptation to sin. Let it give us hope in the midst of trials. Let it give us peace in the midst of uncertainty. We pray, Lord, that we would glorify you in our lives and in our thoughts and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We got our hands full on Saturday. Yep. <laughs> We're going to be all about it. Uh, so there is, instead of a signed in sheet, there's a signed